1: Hey, it's Eli, and I want to tell you about Magic Mind, a little magic elixir that makes you focus better on your work, be more creative, and drink less coffee. I've got a special offer for you, the listeners of Heritage Radio Network. All you have to do is go to www.magicmind.co forward slash HRN, and you can use the discount code HRN at checkout to get 20% off your first order. Welcome to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman, chef and owner of Samisa Restaurant. On today's episode, I welcome Chef Jay Jung, the chef and owner of Cajun, a Korean Cajun pop-up currently operating in New York City. Chef Jay was born in Korea and left her family to enroll in the Culinary Institute of America in New York in 2009. Upon graduation, she moved to New Orleans, where she became enamored by Cajun cuisine while working at some of the finest restaurants in the city, including Dominica and Herb Saint. Jay continually honed in on what would become Cajun, spelled K-J-U-N, during her time in New Orleans and even after moving to New York City in 2014. In New York, she has worked in some of the finest restaurants in town, including Oceana, La Den, The Nomad Restaurant, and most recently as the sous-chef of Café Baloud. In 2021, she launched Cajun as a pop-up operating out of a ghost kitchen, introducing New Yorkers to the exciting blend of Korean and Cajun flavors. She has been featured in the New York Times, Eater, Food & Wine Magazine, Bon Appetit, The New Yorker, and Bloomberg Pursuits, which recently named Cajun one of the best new restaurants in New York. She's appearing on this season of Top Chef 19. And on this episode, we spoke about growing up in Korea and moving alone to the U.S., the cuisine of New Orleans, and finding your own culinary style while working in some of the best restaurant kitchens in the world. Now, on to the episode. Between Oceana, La Bernadette, Nomad, Café Baloud, is there one spot that has been, that was the most inspirational for you and where you learn the most about being an actual chef?
2: Uh, I definitely have to say that my experience at Le Berndin was, in, uh, well, I would say the my experience at Le Branden was so inspirational, and I have learned so much from there. Uh, not just about cooking, but having chef Eric repair every day, checking on your mise en place, and tasting your food every day. And also... Uh, you know, one second. Uh, <laughs> one second. Uh, my experience at Bernardin was the best experience for me. Uh, I learned so much about details and also having the chef, you know, air repair all the time. Every day, he checks on sauces I make. He checks on my knife cuts and he checks the doneness of my fish every day. That was, for me, very inspirational, Um, seeing the chef working very hard and being consistent, and that actually was a great opportunity for me to hone my skills and taking everything to the next level.
1: What's really incredible about him that I've heard secondhand I I don't know him personally is that he actually is truthfully in the kitchen. You know, he is in the thick Uh of it uh, during prep, during service. He obviously has an amazing Mm -hmm. palette. He knows what goes together well, and he's very creative. But Mm -hmm. even just you're saying that he's doing, you know, small things like checking your mise en place, checking your knives. Mm -hmm. Um, What do you take away from his leadership? Now that you're running your own kitchen and going out on your own, how has that, specifically Eric, Chef Repair, how has he influenced your leadership style and what you pay attention to in a kitchen?
2: Yeah, so my a little over two experiences, uh, two years of experience at Liberland then taught me every day, what would you do if you're the chef? And then when I was at Le Bern, then actually, I was always thinking, you know, I was I it was a great opportunity to have a chef every day in the kitchen and putting myself into his vision. And what do what would he say about this or what who what would he think about this? And just being in that position for over two years have me taught. It has taught so much, like uh, like being calm, but also being creative. Also, of course, he has an amazing palette. And also sometimes he asked me to just, Jay, can you make Korean style abalone? And he wanted to just, he was always so open-minded. And that for me, for me was very inspirational. And he... um. Just asked me to make Korean abalone one day, and he, t- you know, he told me, you know, sky's the limit. Just be creative and have fun with it. Don't worry about, you know, budget and everything. Just be a chef and create your own dish. And I was so excited that they, I uh, couldn't sleep for a couple of days just thinking about making like again, you know, great dish for the chef. And also they have an amazing team that has been working for him over decades. That, I believe, is the key for the success as well. And the way he treats his staff and chefs and everybody is just, for me, was very inspirational. He definitely has, like, a leadership, but it's not scary or threatening everybody or intimidating, I would say. He's definitely more... (laughs) uh, friendly and, but he always knows just in a glimpse, he knows something is wrong and you don't, um, for me, it was just everything he's, you know, being in the kitchen with him was just amazing experience.
1: Did you always want to be a chef? Did you have a different career or growing up? Did you think that there was something else that you would end up doing or has this always been kind of a a lifelong passion for you?
2: Um, I really didn't know what I wanted to do when I was in 20s. Um, I went to uh, college and studied in journalism because I thought it was fun and there might be some opportunity for me to do something with it. And I still wasn't figuring out after the graduation. And I wanted to be a, a flight attendant traveling the world. I thought it was really cool. And but like I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And my mom says since you can speak English, you can work at my friend's company, you know, as a translator. I did it for like 3 years and it was so boring and I hated it. And I was just just struggling so hard to figure out what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. But I know that I love to eat. <laughs> Cooking is uh, you know fun to do for me. It was a hobby. And I traveled a lot with my friends, and I wanted to cook often, but I never thought that I would be a chef. And my mom is actually a chef, and I used to help her out. And the more I thought about it and have more experience in her kitchen, I was very convinced that I could be a chef. And especially I really like that kind of vibes, energy in the kitchen, and my mom was making good connection with the guests. And they came to my mom's restaurant when they missed their mom's food. And when I see that kind of vibes and building that, you know, the the bond and, you know, like connection with the guests and also becoming friends. And I really was into that kind of, you know, atmosphere and vibes. So um, I was one day like, why am I not doing this for the rest of my life? Because I love to eat. And I love food so much, and I like cooking so much. Why don't I do this? So uh, at the age of 27, I decided to become a chef. Then I had like two jobs as an English tutor and a translator and saved the money and came here in 2009 to go to the Culinary instead of
1: America. So you try all these other jobs, they're not the right jobs for you. And your mom, who was in the culinary world, did she try to talk you out of being a chef? Because normally, most parents try to talk their kids out of working in the culinary industry. Mm -hmm. And your mom knew firsthand, it's a difficult job it's not very glamorous. Now you, you've you gotten mm-hmm. to sort of a glamorous point in your career, but it really is mm-hmm. a struggle for a lot of it. So did your mom try to mm-hmm. dissuade you from going to the um, Culinary Institute of America in oh. Hyde
2: Park? Oh my God. She was so mad at me. More than mad. She was upset for like a whole year and she stopped talking to me for like a uh, half year actually, because uh, she, number one, she didn't want me to leave Korea. She wanted me to stay close to her. And she told me this is a very hard uh, occupation and it's not really fun. And, it, you know, they have a, like a stereotype, like a nine to five. Uh, actually, my parents worked really hard uh, to get me a better career in life. So they they were like, you know, being a chef is a, like a, still a working class She thought it was back then. And she was like, why do you want to do this? You know, it's tiring. You are, at some point, you are supposed to settle down, have kids and have a better life and stuff. But you can't do that with, uh, with your career, right? That you're looking for. So she was very mad that I was trying to leave Korea and her. And also, you know, not getting a normal occupation wasn't uh, she was expect she expected so she was very disappointed upset for a very long time
1: so where does your mom cook in korea where's the restaurant and where did you grow up
2: oh uh, she had uh two restaurants in seoul like a kimchi restaurant she uh, actually is a kimchi chef she makes one of the best chefs one of the well, She makes one of the best kimchi in Korea. And my uncle is a farmer. So my uncle grows cabbages, rice, chilies, and all the ingredients. And my mom makes like 3000 cabbage a year for the restaurant. Wow. And she serves like a braised pork belly with the kimchi and stuff like that. Uh, just Korean soul food, but every dish has a kimchi. And uh, she was very successful for a long time. And she was on TV. She did some cooking competition in Korea. And now she's retired and home and cooking (laughs) all the time.
1: Did you ever work in the restaurant as a little kid? Did you cook in the kitchen? Did you bus tables? Did you do anything like that in the restaurant?
2: No, actually, my mom opened the restaurant like 20 years ago. So I didn't have an opportunity to work at a restaurant. Uh, but my both of my parents worked really late or often when I was a little child. So I had to learn how to cook and cook for me and my brother.
1: And so when you're cooking those things as, as a young kid, what type of things are you putting together in the kitchen? Are you cooking always? Was it Korean staples? Were you messing around at that point and trying new flavors out? Or was it pretty traditional dishes, easy stuff that you were cooking?
2: My favorite thing as a kid, my favorite thing to eat as a kid was egg. So I was always cooking eggs when I was a little. Then uh, when I entered the high school, I started to play, like making some Chinese sweet and sour pork and deep frying all the porks and made a huge mess at home, getting, you know, got my, you know, my mom always yelled at me. And I sometimes I make like a kakatsu and I made some steak and I, I did a lot of experiment. You know, I was found some, I found some like a cook fun recipes from the magazine and I wanted to play with it and having friends over and made a huge mess often. <laughs>
1: When you arrived uh, in the United States to go to the CIA, mm-hmm. you were twenty-seven years yeah. old. I was twenty-nine. Twenty-nine. So, were you older than most of the folks at the CIA that were starting out in culinary school? And so, what was that experience like? Because you were probably you were on the you were on the sort of the second part of your career you were embarking on a new stage of your career and probably a lot of those people they'd never had a real job before in their life right culinary school was their version of college right Mm -hmm. so what was that like you had a lot more world and life experience than them
2: Uh, for me coming from you know i was definitely older than most of other students at the cia but for me it was a huge transition from korea to New York and age difference of course, but also cultural backgrounds. And I am starting something new. I'm learning something new in a new culture, in a new language. That was very overwhelming. And in the class, you know, I studied English before I came here. And my uh, English teacher would taught me like, hi, my name is Jay. I you know, they will say, and how are you? I'm fine, thank you, and you? There's like a formula. But everyone is saying, what's up? <laughs> hey, yo, and all this stuff. I yeah, totally. I was like, totally. oh, I didn't really know how to respond to all this. So a huge language barrier and then, like, learning new things and then, you know, sitting in a classroom with a bunch of young kids. Uh, it was definitely overwhelming. But also, uh, that was actually the best thing that I've ever done for myself, uh, doing, you know, chasing my dream and think, doing things that I really, that makes me really happy and excited.
1: And so you graduate from CIA. And what's your first job out of school?
2: Oh, uh, so I did my internship in New Orleans when I was at the school. And it was 2009 when Saints won the Super Bowl. And I also experienced Mardi Gras. Then I fell in love with the food, music, culture, jazz, and, you know, the culture there, like a Southern hospitality, everything. So after school, I moved down to New Orleans and spent four years. And I worked at, I started working at restaurant August. And I also worked at uh, Dominica, Herb Saint's. And I also worked at Duki Chase, where Chef Leah Chase
1: uh used to cook there. And so is that that's when you started kind of developing your own style, right? Which is obviously the, the project that you've launched now, which we'll get into in greater detail, which is sort of a mixing of all these yeah. flavors and ideas that you've encountered over your years cooking, but the real impetus for your restaurant that exists in New York, it started in New Orleans. So can you talk a little bit about mm-hmm. those flavors when you first encountered them, when you moved to New Orleans and you started tasting that Cajun cuisine for the first time? What was that like? What 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 did you love about it? And what which of those flavors did you find so exciting?
2: Well, uh, when I was in New Orleans the first time, I was so shocked when I tasted shrimp and grits. That's the first dish that I tasted in New Orleans. And I could relate to Korean like a porridge, like a kanji. but also it's so creamy and comforting and the spice there like, and pickles. Uh, When I went to a farmer's market in New Orleans, I found this green tomato pickles and I was like, why don't I make kimchi out of this? So there was, they're everywhere I, when I was in New Orleans, it was just every, every day I w- was inspiration. I went to the farmer's market. I see different things. But I also, it's like a Korea and the New Orleans is like 7,000 miles. But it's also very close. We love spices. We love barbecue, seafood, pork, and soup and rice. You know, the greens, pickles, marmalade, and all the preserves. I can relate. I can talk about this all day long, but like I was so happy in when I was in New Orleans, just finding all these differences, but also similarities, and I just fell in love with it so much, and I was so excited. But there were definitely, di- you know, different parts. But I could tell. I always said that although like, we had something like that in Korea when I was in New Orleans. So I started to blend this and I kind of thought at the, you know, I did some experiments and stuff like making okra, kimchi, stuff like that. And then it came out really well, not at the first time, but I had to, you know, you know, experiment a couple of times, but it came out really well actually. And um, the more I, started this you know the more I started to blend these two cuisines the more I got so excited and passionate about this and people actually liked it. So I did some pop-ups and I could see people are loving it and they get really passionate about it. So that kept me going also and yeah that's how I came up with Cajun.
1: What did you serve at your first Cajun pop-up? Was it a was it a single dish or was it did you pop up and actually do a full menu somewhere?
2: Uh I actually did the full menu, but you know the Korean sweet potato starch noodle called the chapte noodle. I did it with a Gulf coast seafood like a you know um the blue crab and um oysters and uh gulf shrimp and I mixed that noodles and served with like, um, you know, the bell peppers and celeries and the trinity vegetables. That's how I started. And, you know, I also made like a steam bun, but with a like um, cochon de lait, you know, like a New Orleans classic whole roasted uh, suckling pig dish. I cooked the pig and I served with my steam bun, you know, you know, sandwich, stuff like that, too. And I made like, a you know, the the lacquered pork belly with green tomato, gochujang lacquered pork belly with, a you know, green tomato kimchi. And I also did, like, okra pancake with a tomato and Creole tomatoes. And I, yeah, I've done many different, like, experiments and it has been fun. And I just, it was not like my 80-year-old project that I've been just detailing over years
1: what was the initial feedback like from people that lived in new orleans that weren't in the culinary industry obviously people in the culinary industry you're talented you're doing something exciting they're going to like it they're going to gravitate to something that maybe they've never tried before were there people that had never tried korean food before and that had never tried a korean version of cajun cuisine before were they were they surprised by it what was their kind of yeah. reaction
2: there is only one or two Korean restaurants in entire city in New Orleans. So they don't really know much about Korean food, but they tasted it. Actually, they were like very open to try it. And then they thought it was very different, but also somehow they could relate to their mom's cooking dish. Uh, You know, like they're like, Oh, this is very spicy, but I like that heat. And like a kimchi juice, I saw people eat, they make the, you know, the the biscuit and then dip it there. Instead of using the gravy, they were making, dip their, you know, uh, biscuits into kimchi juice and then serve with the kimchi and sausages and stuff. And then uh, when I used to work at uh, Dookie Chase, Chef Leah Chase was always so curious about Korean cooking. She asked me many questions about it. And we talked actually a lot about Korean cooking, and we actually made Korean dishes together. But she was like, yo, it's very interesting. In New Orleans, we eat a lot of greens and cabbage, and we also eat soup and rice. And we just found we, every day out there, we just discovered a lot of similarities between the Korean and New Orleans cooking. And it was just my dream one day. I want to serve this Korean and New Orleans cuisine to many people and it's happening. So I am very excited and
1: thrilled. Yeah, I love all the parallels that you've described where even though they they are not the same cuisine, there are so many overlapping uh, elements and there are flavor profiles that can be found in both. So you've been able to, to match things up and do textures and flavors that kind of work with each other. So this mm-hmm. new project, tell me about it. Uh, it's in new york we're we're not in new orleans anymore now you're in new york city so uh why you choose new york for it beyond just being here you know like did you think of other cities that it might work in or did you say new york or bust i'm definitely opening up my spot here i don't want to do it anywhere else um actually
2: yeah i've been working and living in new york city for the last seven years so i would say new york is my home and in the middle of a pandemic, KJUN, K-J-U-N is a Korean and Cajun. That's what I came up with. Uh, I started in the middle of a pandemic in a ghost kitchen. So I couldn't get a job. And I everyone last year was, what are we doing? And all the chefs and restaurants are closed. Uh, I started to think of what I can do and actually cajun could be something and so i just literally walking around the street and i found this empty uh kitchen and i just walked in and say hey, do you guys want to share some space with me i like to do some pop-up um that's how i actually started and they were also desperate with the you know not having any much you know business so we share some bills and that's how i started and when i started actually i wanted to sell i always said i might sell five fried chicken a day i don't know maybe a couple gumbo i'm just gonna work by myself uh the reaction was really (laughs) different than i expected and i sold out fried chicken every day there was a line and people were very supportive and passionate about it i am really greatly thankful for and yes I started in New York, and of course, I would like to have brick and mortar here. And once it's happening, I would like to have another restaurant in New Orleans because New Orleans is my home. And it wasn't just a great experience for me. It was for me as growing up as a chef. And it was definitely a new chapter of my life. And I still go there once in a while, and my friends say, Oh, welcome home, you know, definitely. So uh, I would like to go back to New Orleans one day and have another Cajun restaurant.
1: I want to talk a little deeper about the actual creation of this in the midst of the pandemic. So if you can talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about, so you were were working somewhere. Of course, Mm -hmm. early March rolls around and everything shuts down. And then, you know... Do you consider yourself an impulsive person? Was this a snap decision to go and find this ghost kitchen or are you a planner? Did you really think about it for a long time? Like take us through the process of, you know, losing your job and then launching mm-hmm. launching this concept, the Cajun concept.
2: Yeah, so I really well, it wasn't my impulsive thing or anything like that. I thought about Cajun for a very long time. And I've been very careful. I didn't want to mess up or I wanted to start, you know, when I do it, I want it to be great. So I was mentally thinking about it for a whole time. I've been updating the menus and I taking notes on the, you know, all this stuff over years. So I have my own recipe. I had my own like menus and everything on my own. And I've been updating every time I had an idea. And pandemic, in the middle of a pandemic, uh, I wanted to do it for like a month or two. And I wanted to start very, very small. And I wanted to see how far I could go from there. So I just literally brought uh, pots and pans from my apartment and, uh, invested $3,000. <laughs> uh, that's how I started last year and uh after a few months all the pots and pans from my home are not of course they are not heavy duties so i had to toss them but they were the community actually in upper east side were very very supportive and they actually wanted to support me to grow so i got to buy all the pots and pans and trays all the equipment that i needed and i also also uh paid off the 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 initial three thousand dollars and yeah so and i was like maybe i was at the beginning when i said when i started i wanted to have fun and i wanted to do something great but i never thought that it would last that long to be honest
1: So how did you get the word out about this? You know, there's lots of people that listen to this show and that work in hospitality. They want to launch a pop-up themselves. They're dreaming about what their own concept could be. You realize this dream, you put it into effect. So, uh, you know, what were those initial startup costs? And uh, and then how did you Uh promote it? You know, beyond just going on social media, how did you make people get excited about the pop-up?
2: Oh well so first I just literally spent like uh, 4 months alone by myself in my apartment frying chickens and doing all the recipe tasting testings and I had to spit out all the fried chicken that I made <laughs> So first 2 months was just cooking 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 and working all myself all by myself but also I have some friends who are entrepreneurs not in the food industry, but they are very successful. So I just called them. I hey, I'm thinking about doing this pop up, and I would like to get some of your uh, devices. So I started to make a lot of calls to uh, my friends, or I called my friends to you know anybody who is an entrepreneur. So I started to make a phone call, and I did all, so many Zoom calls, to, uh, getting their um, devices there were some people who wanted to be partners and i wasn't sure if it's a good start it's a, it's a good way to start you know from the very beginning so i was just asking a lot of questions and taking notes and that's i don't you know like that's i was just asking a lot of questions and from the experts that i would say that i people that i would look up to and working by myself mostly And I came up with the logo, I drew the logo, and I was asking someone who can draw it, you know, and then send, you know, give me a file. And then uh, came up with the name, I opened the uh, account, bank account, credit card, I did like the first four months all by myself, to minimize all the cost. And there were still a few people who want to be uh like investors but i don't want to get to that you know i don't want to take the investment too early because i want to make the this cajun my cajun <laughs> and i'm still working on it but in the middle the first 4 months was just working alone and you know think about all this and uh, getting all the you know advices and then once I thought, okay, the recipes is ready, and then I have the venue, I started to reach out to, like, all the media. Writing them an email, hey, my name is Jay, I'm a chef, uh, I'm starting this pop-up, and I just want, this is my own first, you know, startup. And I started to write about, like, very detailed information about Cajun. In some media, you know, some... Uh, Uh, the media was interested and they wanted to have an interview. That's how I started. But still, I'm doing all the social medias. And uh, I took pictures and post on my Instagram all by myself and responding. I do touch everything right now, like every little part.
1: Yeah, obviously, you get to have full control that way. But at a certain point, it becomes sort of unsustainable because you're you're firing on all cylinders at all times and that can be pretty exhausting even though you get to oversee all of it. So what's your plan over the next you know, year or so to expand Cajun and also maybe alleviate hopefully some of these burdens that you've got going on when you are really, you are a one person show right now to a certain extent. Yes. Yeah, so uh,
2: right now I am focusing on opening another Cajun in a few weeks i've been talking to the local restaurants and uh uh markets you know and i'm respon i'm waiting for their response right now so my plan is to have another pop up for maybe 5 to 6 months and by the end of the year or early next year i would like to have my own space that i don't need to move here and there uh until then uh i still like to create new dishes and test and see their reactions and what they think and I just want to you know develop and you know all the details and stuff right now.
1: So what does a dream uh, brick and mortar location look like to you in terms of size and location and all that like what do you what do you envision being the type of place that you want to spend maybe the next five or ten years? Uh, you know, looking out from the past, probably at your restaurant. What is it? What do you envision it being like?
2: Oh, uh, I would say it's. I would like to have like. Um, I don't want it to be too big, but I still don't want to be too so small. Um, I see good passion and love for Cajun, and I would like to share with many New Yorkers and many other visitors to New York. So I would say I like to have maybe 50 to 70 seats and um, just uh, in a local area where people can just feel comfortable wearing flip-flops and shorts, you know, no suit. (laughs) And I don't want, I want them to come and just eat good food and laugh loud and, when they are leaving, I want them. I want them to say, "I had a, such a great time here." That's all I'm looking for, and I would be very happy. But also, I have so much, so many different ideas, and I am very creative as a chef. So even if I have my own Cajun, at some point I like to close Cajun and have my own different, you know, style of cuisine and play with it sometimes. Because I also don't people, I also don't want people to, you know, I, th- I also don't want people to get sick of Cajun as well.
1: <laughs> so if you were to, you know, what's another area that really interests you? Like if you would, would it be a more traditional Korean restaurant? Is it totally something completely different that has nothing to do with Korean food. Like what would that, what, what else are you really interested in in the culinary space? What's exciting to you?
2: It will be, when you walk into the restaurant, I want him to feel, oh, this is Jay. I think that's me. Oh, you know, I'm Korean, but I also learned how to cook in New Orleans. And that's my core as a chef. So it should be one of a kind very unique, uh, special place in New York City.
1: We're gonna take a quick break. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Eli, and I want to tell you about Magic Mind, a little magic elixir that makes you focus better on your work, be more creative, and drink less coffee. It's the world's first productivity drink. Magic Mind is a mix of 12 functional ingredients that makes you focus and that can help you fight off stress. It's created to be taken daily for a sharper mind, steady energy, and immune support. And this drink is for people like you, creators, entrepreneurs, cooks, freelancers, artists, and hospitality professionals. Athletes have Gatorade, and now you've got Magic Mind. So try starting your day off with Magic Mind in place of your morning coffee. You could sip it. Shug it like a shot, or even turn it into a delicious matcha latte with your milk of choice. I've got a special offer for you, the listeners of Heritage Radio Network, from the folks over at Magic Mind. All you have to do is go to www.magicmind.co forward slash HRN, and you can use the discount code HRN at checkout to get 20% off your first order. Welcome back to The Line on Heritage Radio. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. Let's jump back into the episode with Jay Jung here on Heritage Radio Network. So let's talk a little bit about this TV show. So tell me a little bit about how that <laughs> process was. How did that come to be? And uh, and what can you share with me right now? You know, what season is it? And I'm sure there's some top secret information that, that you can't share. But um, tell me what you can.
2: Yes, yeah, so uh, last year the Top Chef producers reached me out, and I did some processes. Uh, all the I went through all the process and I got accepted. And I uh, while I was doing the top, you know, while I was doing a Cajun, so it was a huge decision for me to make: should I continue this pop up, or should I close and go to Houston to do this? Top Chef Season Nineteen. It was a huge uh, decision for me to make, and everyone that I was who are in the you know business, like not in the food business, but everyone says you should definitely you know do it. And then also for me, being on Top Chef was a very special. I thought because. Uh, I came from Korea and I to go to the culinary school in 2009. And back then in the dorm room, my favorite activity was watching Top Chef with my classmates. And now I am grown up as a chef and I am on the show. And that was a very also emotional, but also very, for me, it was like a monumental kind of moment for me. So I definitely thought that it would be worse to close my business and do the Top chef. And I will be so proud when I get older. And I will tell myself, you know, you came to America to be a chef, and you become a chef, and you did the Top chef.
1: That must have been such a wild moment for you when you entered the set for the first time, you know, pretty much everyone in the food industry, and millions of people that aren't can totally visualize what the Top Chef kitchen looks like. And there's the judges table. And of course, we all know the judges, they're super famous. So what did it feel like that first day? You're in your whites, and you walk in and you actually have to compete? What did you feel like when that was going on?
2: Oh my god! It is such a nerve-wracking. Like you, there's so many different emotions. Like you are excited to be there. Also, you are so nervous, and the judges are intimidating, and you don't know any other contestants, and you don't know how capable they are, and you don't know, you don't know anything. You don't know what you get into. You don't know any challenges about it. You don't have any taste of it, and just. You just have to believe in yourself. That's all you got. And uh, uh, looking back, it was really a cool, fun experience, to be honest, and one of the definitely the most memorable experience. And uh, I don't know if I want to do this again. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but I'm really grateful for this opportunity to meet all the talented chefs there.
1: Was there ever a moment when you know, off camera or in downtime when you were all kind of comparing and getting to know each other. I mean, where you've worked, you've worked in two phenomenal food cities and and you know, a couple of restaurants that you've worked at are known worldwide and the rest of them are known, you know, in the United States. They're they're all very, very well respected restaurants. So when you started comparing notes, did you get a little bit more confident knowing, you know, what your background was and where you had come from, or were you still mm-hmm. feeling overwhelmed and nervous?
2: Actually, the other contestants were also, they have an amazing resume. Like some of the people have experiences in New York, in Europe and working for the one of the best chefs in the world. Uh, just... Being yourself was intimidating, I'm not going to lie. But also I believe that I am intimidating for them and knowing that we are equal, you know. So I just wanted to be myself and I wanted to just cook my food pretty much. That was my plan and yeah. Did you get (laughs) get an opportunity
1: (laughs) to showcase what you believe is your – your cooking identity and your cooking personality? Did you get to make dishes? I mean, obviously there's challenges and you're you're confined often by what the ingredients are and the challenges, but do you feel like you got to cook your own food while you were on the show? Uh, Actually, that was my goal
2: to cook my own food and to share. The reason that I did the Top Chef was, I believe I have a great food and story to be shared with uh, many others. Uh, so for that reason, I believe I accomplished my goal when I was at the show and when I was doing the show and I was very happy that I was able to cook my food that, you know, that represents my culture, Korea, and also New Orleans and my experience in New, New York city.
1: Who's the first person that you called when you got accepted? Did you call someone in the food industry or did you call a family member?
2: Um I don't really remember, but when they called me that I would be on the next Top Chef, I know that I was crying. <laughs> uh, it was very for me was very um crazy to see myself making this far, coming along from Korea and I was just culinary students watching Top Chef, and now I am on Top Chef. <laughs> That was uh, really crazy.
1: Yeah, you did two things during COVID that barely anyone else has been able to do, which is you launched a business during COVID <laughs> and then you went on national TV during COVID. Most people were staying at home that entire time. Yeah. And, and, you know, you got to actually accomplish some things, but it must have been really scary during COVID when you were launching your business. Were there weeks when you were? prepping by yourself for Cajun. I know you said that there were lines and that it was successful, but you know, as a person doing a pop-up, do you feel like at any moment people might not show up that week or, or did you start to get more and more confident as time went on? Actually,
2: I, like I said, uh, the UN, there were a lot more people who wanted to get my food than I expected. Uh, So, and I was always understaffed and I was always, you know, have a shortage in prepping situation. And I really didn't want to stretch and compromise the quality, though. That was one thing that I learned the most from Le Bernardin. Uh, Once I ran out of certain ingredients, I didn't go to a local store and then just served whatever, like, you know, buying like uh, some cheap ingredients and then just try to, serve the food i just closed right away <laughs> you know i thought it was really important to make people happy even if they didn't get my food they will come back but if once they are disappointed uh they wouldn't come back you know so for me it was uh also i see all the efforts you know coming from Westchester. New Jersey, Brooklyn, Queens, all the, all different boroughs. And I didn't, I really wanted to make their trip worthwhile. So I don't want to say, you know, if they said, oh, I drove two hours to get the food and the food wasn't that great, they will, you know, break my heart. And there were, you know, many people coming from Westchester, offstate New York, Long Island, New Jersey. And I really didn't want to, I wanted to make them feel like, oh, the trip was worthwhile to get the kind of food.
1: Could you describe a dish for us, a Cajun dish that you feel really is an exemplary version of what you're trying to accomplish? And if you can describe not only the components of the dish, but, uh, you know, where you draw the inspiration from in the dish, maybe which parts are Cajun or Korean or or which parts are both. If you could um just talk us through one that you think is is one of your favorites.
2: Uh it's really difficult for me to pick one dish because every dish I love so much. And I thought about the before I put it on the menu, I thought about it for months and years. So every dish I would say is very well thought out, but um there are a couple dishes that I would like to mention. Um, Kimchi jambalaya is one of the staples. Uh, It is not kimchi fried rice. People think, oh, kimchi jambalaya. Maybe she made a kimchi fried rice with andouille sausage. But it's definitely, definitely, it tastes like jambalaya, but the kimchi is so necessary and plays a role, plays a a very important role as a hot sauce in there. And also... um, Gumbo is very special for me. Like gumbo for me is like um, I make gumbo. You know, as it's like a, every time we have a storm in the city, and then just when we have nothing to do, that's my my favorite thing to do, like making gumbo at home. And I learned how to make gumbo from all the best chefs in New Orleans. And when I make gumbo, I every time I do make gumbo, I think about all the faces and names who taught me how to make gumbo. One day I spilled the five gallons of gumbo and I got yelled at so much. I think about that moment too. <laughs> uh, sometimes I think about the, uh, the chef Leah Chase, her gumbo and also their Cajun gumbo and Creole gumbo. But also I made my own gumbo from putting all their tricks and seasoned with the soy sauce, hot sauce, And serve with this okra kimchi that makes the dish very special. So um, it's like, you know, Cajun for me is my own baby. And if you pick your favorite child, it's really hard to. (laughs) I never had a baby, but I can feel. I totally,
1: I get what you're saying. Yeah. uh, (laughs) Yeah. I saw that you were doing king cakes. That was for Mardi Gras. Yes. And so those that was a special order. And, uh, and that sold out. But I'm wondering, if people want to uh, try your food in New York City, uh, how can they do it? Do you post on your Instagram when your next pop up is going to be like, what's the best way for people to try your food right now? Are you kind of taking a pause while you're promoting Top Chef? Or how does that work?
2: Uh, so uh, all this information and every, all the uh, update will be on uh, Cajun Instagram, K-J-U-N-N-Y-C. Uh, I post on the stories all the time to communicate with the people. And, um, you know, there's a, in a market called Butterfield Market on Madison Avenue in New York City. They have Cajun food once in a while. And I post on my Instagram when I delivered the food to Butterfield. And I'm working hard on the reopening. Uh, I believe it will happen in a few weeks or so. So keep, please follow us on Instagram and stay followed and for any updates.
1: <laughs> Chef, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me about Cajun. Uh, super exciting to hear about the pop-up. I'm really looking forward to it happening again, or a a new, maybe a new brick and mortar in the future. That sounds like it's definitely going to be in the plans and, uh, congratulations on Top Chef. Uh, once we stop recording, you can tell me if you want or not. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and, you know, everyone out there that's listening, uh, make sure to follow Uh, the Instagram so that you can stay up to date on all the information. And of course, let's plug the show as well. When are new episodes coming out?
2: Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you so much for having me here and uh, giving me an opportunity to share my stories and, you know, Cajun and all. I really appreciate it. I had such a great time.
1: Of course, it was my pleasure. Great to talk with you. When can they see the, the next episode of Top Chef? Do you know when it runs? So tomorrow. Okay. Tomorrow is day one. Okay. <laughs> tomorrow day one. <laughs> All, All right. right, cool. Uh so everybody out there, check out Jay on Top Chef. And of course, uh follow Cajun NYC on Instagram. That's K-J-U-N-N-Y-C. Thank you. And you
2: can also watch the Top Chef on the our oh, bravo at 8 p m
3: every thursday Hi, I'm Katie Mosman Wadler, Executive Director of HRN. HRN is dedicated to amplifying small businesses that keep our communities vibrant. Today, I'm asking business owners to take part in our business membership drive by supporting HRN's mission with a $500 membership. HRN will shine a light on your work and you'll help sustain our mission to expand the way eaters think about food. As a thank you for this tax-deductible donation, your business will receive on-air mentions, social media posts, listings on our website and more. You'll also play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org/biz to become a business member today. That's heritageradionetwork.org slash B-I-Z. Thank you for your support.
1: The line is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org.